welcome back to Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop. As we open up the gatefold vinyl sleeves, unfold cassette inlays or slip out CD booklets, we will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our own musical journeys. I hope that you'll enjoy sharing in some memories and insights. If you do, please spread the words, leave me some feedback, like, share and let me know your thoughts on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages with myself, Ian. Joining me for this episode is musician, writer, DJ and film producer Bob Stanley. He is a founder member of Sinetien and a regular contributor to, among others, The Guardian, The Times and Record Collector. Bob has compiled and produced an enviable collection of compilation albums for his own record label, Croydon Municipal, and with a host of collaborators for Ace Records. Importantly, Bob is a huge fan of pop music, as clearly demonstrated in his 2013 book, Yeah, 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 The Story of Modern Pop. Bob, welcome to the Back to Now podcast. Hello. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Yeah, not bad, not bad. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. The premise is to take a look at compilation albums from through the years, including the Ubiquitous Now series, and to share in memories of how these albums have soundtracked and signposted our lives and have often served as budget-friendly introductions to a much wider world of musical discovery. What early music memories do you have and what influenced your first listening choices? Well, my parents didn't have many records. They had... uh... A stack of singles that um, they bought before they got married. They got married in 1961, and I didn't buy any records <laughs> for about ten years um, because I had no money. Uh, so, uh, so I had I had a lot of uh, sort of um, rock and roll singles and trad jazz singles to play about with when I was a kid. Also, had Bridge Over Troubled Water and the Graduate soundtrack, um, one Neil Diamond album, and 22 Dynamic Hits Volume Two on KTL, which was. Um, the one I like best, not surprisingly, <laughs> which had which had a you know a, the, the usual kind of mad mixture that Kaitel put together, <clears throat> slightly oddly sequenced, but um, the original version of Sailing before Rod Stewart did it, which uh, um, uh, Son of My Father and uh, What's Your Name by Chicory Tip, which is kind of my introduction to synthesizers. But yeah, that was that was that was a that was a big deal for me. It's interesting. I think um, there was an article a couple of years ago that said that every single household has a copy of Bridge Over Troubled Water and Abbey Road. And yes, <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, or, or Graceland. I think Paul Simon kind of uh, managed to get two completely different generations. Uh, every house has, has one or the other. I think it was often um, even people that didn't buy records had these records in their collection. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I, I don't really know how they did that i mean yeah my parents really had so few records we had they, they used to go to the, my dad used to go to the, the the library in red hill and and borrow albums and tape them but yeah we, they really had about five or six albums it was it was it's uh, but one of them was bridge over truffle water <laughs> yeah library culture is interesting as well serves serves such a big purpose in so many people's lives and I can certainly remember my pack of TDK cassettes and my library card. That was pretty much all you needed back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I used to take things off the radio a lot as well. But um, yeah, Red, Red Hill Library, the record library, was, was was pretty small. They had everything by Leonard Cohen, who I'd never heard of, obviously, because he didn't have any hits. So like, who is this bloke? He's <laughs> like five albums by him. I've never heard of him. Uh, but yeah, my dad used to borrow things like Focus, so kind of sort of slightly sort of proggy things. 
um, and and taped them and, and never really listened to because he didn't really like them very much. But um, yeah, the, the 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 record library was was uh, was definitely an important thing. I, I, I like getting. I'm not the kind of record collector who uh, wants immaculate copies of things. I'm quite. I'm always quite happy to get an ex-library copy, which is from a specific place and it's date stamped. And uh, that's part of the, you know, part of pop history as well, really. So uh, I, I like getting ex-library albums. The librarians that were in charge of the music parts of libraries were very, very serious people, almost inspect records on return to make, you know, make sure they were still in kind of decent enough condition. Um, I yeah. think, I mean, I can remember back, I think, you know, my, my first introduction to things like Pink Floyd probably came through library records and it, it wasn't even things like Dark Side of the Moon. I think it was Atom Heart Mother was the first one. And wow. just just being drawn to the, the cover more than anything else. Yeah, no, it's a pretty pretty amazing cover. Um yeah, no, I remember, I remember that but I think because mostly they were there for classical music, weren't they? They, yeah. they seemed to be the, the bulk of the collection in, in Red Hill certainly was classical. And I remember they had um they had inner sleeves which um uh, had scratches marked on them. I don't know if you had this in your library. So, like, so when you took the record back, if there was an additional scratch that wasn't there before, they could spot it and presumably find you. I don't know. We always looked after them, so it wasn't yeah. a problem. But uh, yeah, they're very, uh, it's very serious. Seems seem quite, uh, you know, quite. Um, um, I was going to say Eastern Bloc, but it sounds. By the way, it's very sort of um, slightly authoritarian. It's I, I quite like that about it. I often wonder if these authoritarian people knew we were all taking them home to record. They probably did. I'd have thought so, yeah, yeah. From a kind of records buying point of view, what was your local record shops? There were a couple in, in Red Hill, there was Rhythm and uh, Cloaks. Rhythm, the prices of their singles didn't go up for years. Singles were always 59p, I remember that, um, from when I could afford to start buying them anyway, which was like 1974. But yeah, that was it, just two independents. It was like before before our price and moved to Croydon, when I was 13. So then you had Virgin and Harlequin briefly. I remember being there. So yeah, but uh, rhythms and cloaks were the, the, the shops used to go to and uh, save up my pocket money. I didn't really have, uh, I didn't, I didn't buy that many. Then. I didn't have a huge amount of money. Still very evocative thinking back to those, those bargain bins and the, you know, cause it was always the bargain bins you went to, to be honest. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, but I, you know, as I did years later and you probably did as well, I spent a lot of time just browsing I had to get a train to school, so I get off the train and start waiting in the record shop for fifteen minutes till uh, till I got a lift home. I can remember one of the things I really clearly remember is a compilation called The Beat Merchants, which was um, uh, a sixties compilation that Andrew Lauder put together, who is really you know, a really important figure for me because he did uh, basically the, he's basically the British Lenny Kay um, and put these compilations together of things that weren't hits, which was almost unheard of at the time. Just finding obscure. Mercy Beat Records or 60s Beat Records. Do I love you all the time? All the time, all the time. Do I want you to be mine? To be mine, to be mine. Yes, I do, yes, I do. Yes, you know I do. And this compilation, The Beat Merchants, had like an illustrated cover and it was a double album. Uh, it was a glossy sleeve. It's on United Artists, I think. Um, it just looked, it looked amazing. I just really, really wanted it, even though I didn't know any of the tracks on it. <laughs> Uh, and even now, they're not particularly well-known. They're sort of 60s beat records. They're not psychedelic ones or anything that's hugely collectible. But that was kind of a bit of a formative moment for me, just looking at the sleeve of this thing and wondering, oh, who are these bands? What's, uh, uh, I wonder what it's going to sound like. Um, and obviously, it wasn't going to spend three ninety nine, <laughs> which I didn't have on a record that I'd never heard. Often those albums that you don't know artists on are the ones that are, um, are more interesting. 
yeah definitely i mean that's um that's kind of something i've kept in mind doing the things for ace really um you want to you know you want to put things on there that you know people are probably completely unaware of and i was i suppose with the compilations i, I used to buy when i was a kid either secondhand k-tail records from jumble sales or um greatest hits compilations which was a, a, a really good way of finding out uh obscure things that you never heard like you know later singles by the tornadoes that weren't telstar or whatever um and that yeah that was kind of my way into like obscure 60s music anyway but yeah just looking at the titles and trying to imagine what the music sounded like was something that's obviously just doesn't happen now it's uh, that's that that moment's gone you know it's so easy now to kind of think how music is it is at people's fingertips you know you can you take example um the nuggets compilation album you could make that on spotify now very very easily but it, it was yeah. that it was that element of discovery and finding something and then taking that to other people and saying you've got to hear this it's 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 incredible and just having that opportunity to share yeah absolutely um yeah and, and also just i think one of the things you don't get with spotify is looking at credits on compilations and working mm. out names of producers or songwriters and then seeing that on another album and think, oh, I might take a chance on that because it's written by Goffin and King or produced by Jack Nietzsche or whatever. So that was that was a way of discovering things, which I'd have thought is, you know, that's not really possible with um listening to things online. Yeah, that was that was that was that was really important. I mean, yeah, Nuggets was um was a big one for me. I got a copy um <clears throat> which didn't have a sleeve, so it was like it was really cheap. It was like a pound or something, because it was just the just the inner sleeves and the records uh from the, the Sire reissue. But yeah, I mean the things on that were incredible psychotic reaction and things just uh, blew me away never heard them there weren't hits in britain or any hits in america i can remember the first time hearing uh, the nas track on there and then making the mm. connection that it was todd rundgren and you know pulling all that together and just thinking can there be any more phasing and flanging on this track yeah. Yeah. um <laughs> it's then you know as we kind of go through our journey signposting songs and hearing influences in different places and and i think that's that's often what those compilation albums do really well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. Open your eyes was absolutely one of my favourite things on Nuggets. When I got, when I did finally get a, a job working in our price and could uh, buy things that were in the back of record collector, I bought a single of Open My Eyes, uh, a, Brit- a British copy, uh, and it didn't have the phasing on it. Oh no! <laughs> it's like it's some different take without any phasing. I'm like, well, that was that's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about singles as well, I mean, those ex-Jukebox singles was a big way in. One that I can remember is the Mind Game single by John Lennon. But the B-side was Meat City, and it's okay. just the most bizarre thing you've ever heard. He's got tape loops on it. Some of it's played backwards. Um, interesting point in John Lennon's career anyway, you know. Yeah, but um, <laughs> but it was it was just, you know, when I picked this up from a probably a chemist somewhere... <laughs> Yeah. Um, and in one of those racks, took it home, flipped it over, and it was just the, the loudest, craziest thing. It was just that kind of how we kind of did that dot to dot journey, and you piece things together. And compilations serve that purpose really, really well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the the, the ones that I was buying before before now came along. You get so many non hits because they were like easy to license, something on yeah. penny farthing or whatever um, magnet. The smaller independents that. Um, we're happy to license the tracks. We were talking about 20 Star Tracks earlier on Ronco, which Pete Wiggs's parents had. And I had a song called Beat the Reaper by Laurie Stivers on it, which is a, a gorgeous kind of like American singer-songwriter thing with like woodwinds on it. Beat the Reaper, it's a long way home. 
never even close to being a hit. It took me a long time to find a single of it. Um, and her albums aren't that easy to find. Goodness knows how it ends up on there. But it's, it's like, that was, so many people must know that song because of that compilation. Yeah. Um, so it seeped into a lot of people's consciousness. Those kind of tracks are like the real sort of gateways for me, I think. Um, obviously, when you get something like Nuggets, where it's been properly put together uh, with the listener in mind, rather than <laughs> what can we get for like a fiver from uh, Larry Page, they're, they're always going to be great compilations. But the, the, the random nature of, of the of certainly the 70s hits compilations uh, is something I do miss because obviously nails have always been just hits, just major yeah. hits, really. Yeah. Let's go back to the 70s then, because it is a really interesting period for compilation albums. How were you aware of them growing up? Well, really, it's because I didn't have much pocket money. And so if I wanted to buy singles, the best way to get to get them was like waiting for the next KTL album to come out. So they were really, you know, a really big deal for me. And I, I used to like, probably like a lot of people, make cassettes and do my own artwork and pretend they were KTL compilations, but I'd just take things off the radio. And I wrote to KTL, made some suggested compilations to them when I was about 13. <laughs> Uh, didn't get a reply. I was going to ask, did you get a response? No, no. no. But it's quite <laughs> funny because like Donkey's Years Later, I wrote a thing for The Independent on uh, on KTEL and I ended up talking to Don Reedman, who was like the person who put all those albums together. So it felt a bit circle of life or something. But no, they, they, those things were really, yeah, they were, they were the only way I could afford to buy singles. Really. I didn't buy that many new singles because a KTEL album was the price of two singles or maybe three. So they're, they're very important to me. That's, that's, that's really just how I started building up a record collection. Going back to Dynamic Hits, what were the big big standout tracks for you? I really like Dreams of Ten a Penny by Kincaid, among the, the non-hits, which is yeah. like Carter and, uh, John Carter, who um, is one of my favourite songwriters. That would have been the first thing I heard by him, I suppose. And then Beach Baby would have been a year or so after that. But uh, yeah, Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass is on it, which, again, not, not a hit in Britain, but a big hit in America. And uh, a, a lot of the way it goes from With a Little Help from My Friends by Joe Cocker straight into A Thing Called Love by Johnny Cash, which is... Uh, <laughs> uh, and then into Popcorn. It's an amazing <laughs> three songs in a row. <laughs> but that, um, that in itself, though, it kind of signifies the very unique nature of, of UK compilation albums, you know. Absolutely, yeah. You still remember the running order. You, you get to the end of a song, on the you hear it on the radio and you wait for popcorn to start, you know, yeah, because yeah. Uh, that's what you heard. You've heard millions of times. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, partic- a particularly odd bit of sequencing. You think you put chicory tip next to hot butter. That seems like the obvious. Well, yeah. Um, we've become more sophisticated in, in what we expect from compilation albums now. There's that wonderful democracy of of the UK charts, you know, and um, it, it would be okay to have prog rock next to some bubblegum next to a big ballad ear. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's like watching Top of the Pops would have been like that. So it didn't occur to me as a kid that there was anything strange about that. The, the charts around that time were, su- were such a mixture. It was like, um, certainly early early 70s, you had a lot of reggae as well, which, which KTL did tend to like group together. Or fully sold, you get like sort of two or three fully sold tracks in a row. Yeah, it was, it was the, the the charts were all over the place. I mean, it's obviously glam sort of dominated a bit around sort of seventy three, seventy four. But you look at the number ones, and there's such a there's such an odd mixture. There's no really probably predominant trend, and that's um, that makes the compilations from that period you know much more interesting and varied. I suppose. Spoken to people who've said that 
early compilations in their house were, were things like Motown chartbusters yeah. and possibly maybe reggae chartbusters as well, mm. you know, um, huge sellers as well. And obviously you're beginning to see the different elements of licensing because a lot of the Motown tracks didn't feature across the K-Tales of the Ronco's for that reason. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they, EMI just kept everything for themselves. EMI is one of those things I still can't believe EMI doesn't exist anymore because it's felt like, you know, the BBC or something. It's, uh, you know, it's the, the record label and, yeah, they wouldn't license things. They do their own. There's a thing called Solid Gold from 73, I think, which was a, was a number one album as well, which was just EMI tracks. But it's basically runs like a K-Town album. But yeah, Motown Sharpbusters, again, was something I, I started picking them up at Jumble Sales because they were such huge sellers. They, yeah. weren't, um, they weren't hard to find. At volume, volume 3, used to see all the time with this sort of silver cover. Yeah. And, you know, again, there was like stuff on there, like Behind a Painted Smile I'd never heard before, which yeah. blew away. It was a wonderful um, UK view of Motown. Those, I think, you know, the first couple or so, you've got sleeve notes by Tony Blackburn on the back. And I think Alan Freeman does, does some as well. And it just yeah. almost kind of takes Motown from the Americans and says, here it is in a British package. Yeah, yeah. But well, it was Tamla Motown, I suppose. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Totally British invention, or Dave Godin's invention. Yeah, absolutely. And just the, the the records that were released as singles were because they were getting played in clubs or because Tony Blackburn was playing on the radio, like, I'm still yeah. waiting. So it, it didn't make any sense to, I guess, Motown in America, when the Motown Chartbusters albums were selling in huge numbers here, would have been, yeah, I don't know, the Norman Whitfield productions and much more sort of adventurous stuff. Where over here we were getting reissues of Jimmy Ruffin's singles getting in the top 10, which, which was great because they're all such good records. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, the songs that are here that are well known that probably are pretty obscure in America, I guess. Yeah. It's heartbreaking now when you see people on eBay trying to sell off a copy of Motown Chartbusters 3 for 40, 50 quid. And you think, oh, really? You know, it's <laughs> uh, it's such a shame, to be honest, because there, I mean, there, there must be plenty of households that have got copies of particularly Volume 3. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, I suppose, you know, the, the, the quality of the music on it, it's, you know, the, yeah. the value of rare records compared to the quality of the music. Motown Shoppers' Volume 3 should be worth 300 quid, really. <laughs> absolutely. KTEL really did kind of expand their own market as as the 80s arrived. Yeah, I remember them doing a Harry Nielsen compilation and things like that, which seemed very, very odd, and a Moody Blues one, not with the greatest artwork, I remember. <laughs> I was still, I, mean, I was still buying them. I was still buying them. I remember Pete Wiggs coming around my house when I bought Chart Blasters '81, and he saw it. And he went, "You're not still buying those things, are you?" And I stopped <laughs> because I was, I was so mortified. Was, uh, and obviously, it had you know, "I am the beat" on it and things like that. When I was also buying singles on postcard, it's just kind of like a <laughs> hangover. I had to keep buying them it, uh, for the collection. But um, I, yeah, I, pl- I played them. It's not like I didn't play them, but. Um, the taste is always quite varied. Anyway, I buy singles on postcard and also listen to, to the Hucklebutt. <laughs> <laughs> Only in private. I actually think what you're talking about there mirrors a lot of record buyers' experiences, where it almost becomes a bit like a guilty pleasure. If you're a pop fan, we often hide it. I mean, maybe kind of don't talk about certain things at certain points in our journey, but they're still there. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, I think yeah, Pete was always um, much cooler than I was. Like that, he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't have, uh, he wouldn't have done that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I remember buying I don't know, things like Castles in the Air by Don McLean when I was a single in 1982. When I was, you know, listening to obscure thing, early things on Charlie Red or Factory or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, I definitely would have kept that quiet. <laughs> I wouldn't have told anyone. <laughs> 
Well, still living at home, so, you know, you play records at home. You're not sharing a house with anyone. You can uh, with any of your friends, you know, before you leave home. It's um, you can do that. It, you don't, you know, it's quite easy to hide those things. I <laughs> can, um, I can remember DJing at college around about 1990, and you know, we'd be playing all the kind of indie dance hits of the day, trying to sneak in SOS by ABBA. <laughs> <laughs> 1990, 1991, ABBA. And until mm. things flipped as the 90s moved on, you know, mm. it was still quite hard, to be honest. Yeah, that kind of pop sensibility, trying to drop it in whenever you can. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's when Sinetian had started. And I think you know, the number of times we got called ironic was um, just, uh, you know, the people just assume you're joking. You say, like, David Essex records. People <laughs> think you're saying it with a raised eyebrow. And it's like, nope. I really like these records. And yeah, so yeah, absolutely. I, I remember that very well. Uh, or people were intentionally doing wacky dancing when you put on something like an ABBA record. was Yes. Always happened, always happened. But I remember then it kind of went up a notch when you had the, um, living in London, um, you had this sort of like Hoxton Dalston thing where you go to a pub and someone would play a great record. Then they would play Eye of the Tiger because they were being ironic. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. And it's just like... Um, Wacky art students, but um, it, yeah, that kind of evened itself out by the end of the 90s, I think. Early 80s, obviously, you've got KTL still very much controlling the market. However, things were changing, and we see that kind of change towards the end of 1983. Where were you in life then when, when the first Now album arrived? I had started college in Liverpool and left after about six weeks and gone back to Croydon and I was working as a quantity surveyor in Croydon in Beckenham which uh, so yeah I'd left school and the now compilation just felt like oh this is kind of this is you know definitely the end of a phase in my life because this is obviously going to wipe out Ktel and Ronco <laughs> I remember the, the whole the now thing for me at the time felt it felt very pleased with itself it's like and it was it just seemed incredible that these big record labels hadn't thought of doing it 10 years earlier as yeah. soon as KTL had a number, you know, the best-selling album of 1972, you think they go, "Well, we better do that ourselves instead of make some money." But it took them ten, yeah, eleven years, eleven years to get that together. Why do you think that was? I think it's really they just didn't want to um, look too grubby. I think it's um, you know messing around with like hit singles and TV advertising. I suppose the TV advertised albums on major labels. You had the EMI ones, like the Twenty Golden Grades. Beach Boys, Ben Campbell, The Supremes, and they'd have quite classy adverts, and it'd, it'd probably have Simon Bates doing the voiceover, <laughs> um, and it all, felt, it all felt quite official. I think it was like a, a compilation that had uh, "Kissing with Confidence" <laughs> on it, or whatever. They they made yeah. me think that was just a bit beneath them. I, I can't imagine why else um, why else they didn't do it before. It's cer- certainly you know like CBS as it was then, or EMI or Virgin on their own could have could have easily done a hits compilation once a year at least, you know, two a year. So I think I think that's why, yeah. That idea of grubbiness is quite interesting because I think you're right. I can I think I think the singles market was maybe seen as cheaper. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just trying to think now what there was there was a there's a Motown one called The Last Dance, which again I think was a number one album. And it's just Motown ballads and it's like obviously seen as classy, but it's actually the cheesiest idea in the world. <laughs> All the Beatles love songs. Compare that to like, I don't know. Chart hits eighty one, and like which one? Which one's aged better? It's like, yeah. There's no, no doubt that a KTL album looks much more fun and immediate, and not aimed at um, sort of Abigail's party crowd or whatever. 
So yeah, it's uh, that I think it's trying to make these things look like they're not just compilations of singles was quite an important thing for EMI to make them look like they're still classy somehow. The pop market by that point was incredibly glossy, and the singles chart from mid '83 was probably at its highest peak since the early '70s. Do you think there was a link between those two things? I suppose by '83 you had um, the major the major labels have kind of got control of the charts again, hadn't they? They'd had like sort of like I guess '70. 79 to 81 was very much sort of post-punk not as in you know wire but post-punk as in like groups that came out of punk and um smaller labels um and quite individual people bossing the charts uh, and by 83 you had nick kershaw and howard jones and it was um major labels had kind of got control and sort of uh, boxed in this sort of like um quirkiness or whatever so i think yeah because they'd managed to do that that kind of goes together with the now first now yeah i hadn't really thought of that but that makes sense Uh, yeah i mean i think the official story is that emi and virgin were felt they were licensing tracks out to other other labels and said hang on we can do this better ourselves i think they really saw the opportunity to to corner the market with their own artists and and kind of pull this together yeah definitely but again it, it just Blows my mind they didn't think of it years earlier. I'm not really sure why they couldn't just have like a, a separate wing within CBS or EMI that just did these compilations and uh, you know, do it on their own label, but have a little bit of distance so didn't you know they didn't look like they're getting their hands dirty. Yeah, but I think yeah, I think it's uh, maybe because the, the, those those labels had had really sort of got you know the charts sewn up. They just this was start taking it a stage further, I suppose. Really. <laughs> Street Sounds Electro album started in '83. That was the, that was you know, a whole different way of putting compilations together. But it, well, I, well, not not that different because the the, re, the reason Morgan Khan did them was to because people couldn't afford to buy all the singles or the import yeah. singles. So it's kind of the same impulse as Kaitel, but did it a lot cooler. There was a very well curated element to the Electro albums as well. It really catered to the audience that it knew it was trying to sell records to. Yeah, absolutely. That was a very a very new market. They're incredibly quick to, to find it. And it was just like, you know, kids really, like 12, yeah. 13 year olds. No one took it seriously. All, all, the, all those um pirate stations like Invicta just hated it, I remember, which uh <laughs> which you know made it all the more exciting for me when I was kind of discovering those things. If you look at the you know, the first three or four now albums really don't feature dance music. No, no. Um no, I think that's one one of the things. I didn't like about the nails was was it did feel like the way that Radio One only played a certain type of record, and if they could get Phil Collins on top of the pops, they were really happy. Um, and <laughs> the things that were more interesting were really really sidelined, um, and it felt like a reaction against. It obviously, felt like it went with the politics of the time as well, but it felt like a reaction against kind of new pop and post punk. And things where you know people might be, you never knew what they were going to do. Yeah. But uh, Paul Young, you know, you, you had a safe pair of hands. Don't <laughs> um, yeah. pick on Paul Young in particular, but uh, I like Paul Young. But um, yeah, I don't know, Johnny hates jazz or something. So yeah, there was. We're, we're Tories and proud of it. It's like <laughs> you're safe there, then, aren't you? I, I didn't really buy any now albums till the nineties. When it got, when they got, I think when 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 it was like the two CDs and they had more tracks in them as well, so it was more appealing. And they could like have a disc that was like more dance music or one that's more indie or whatever. They became they became much more interesting. That's when I started buying them, and then and then went backwards after that to to complete the set. 
because <laughs> I'm OCD. Um, they really didn't interest me. And I think um, I haven't looked at one from like 87. 87, I suppose, being a, a really important year because there's so many house records in the chart. Mm. I'm pretty sure that's not reflected on the nows. I, don't, I can't think of the top of my head. There was no, no, no 11, I remember, was was quite an important one because, well, what would have been side four, it kind of broke tradition. We had Bomb the Bass, Beat This, Cold Cut, Yaz, Doctor in the House, you had Crush, House Arrest, and I think the, the Fine Young Cannibals spin-off, Two Men in a Drum Machine, would that be right? Something like that. Oh, right, yeah, kind of forgotten that. Um, and uh, and also the fantastic Beatmasters and Cookie Crew, uh, Rock the House. But it was almost like a side dedicated to dance music, and I think it was probably the first time now had recognised it and you could all probably argue a bit late to the party as well yeah I mean there's, there's like yeah of course they could have done that earlier but um, you had the Now Dance albums out around that time as well didn't you when did that was that 88 that started the first Now Dance was 1985 um, oh right wow the first side is, is given over to Phil Collins the power really? station yeah yeah Phil <laughs> Collins and Philip Bailey uh, you've got the power station the Eurythmics, would I lie to you? It's not really dancing. <laughs> dance to it, I suppose. Stephen Tintin Duffy's on there. I mean, they're all 12-inch versions, but they're not what you'd particularly call dance music. As the album goes on towards the end, it becomes quite interesting because you get... Um, Who Comes to Boogie? Uh, little Little Benny and the Masters. Oh, yeah. It was that kind of British... Um, it, it had a name. Go-Go. Yeah, kind of Go-Go. Yeah dance music type stuff which which they kind of move towards but yeah you have to sift through quite a lot of um white male rock dressed up as dance music <laughs> before you get to it um they'd kind of come to it later i think um 1989-90 was when they really hit the the, the now dance albums uh, yeah and we get all those wonderful things we're now seeing on top of the pops like lfo and electri 101 and which is yeah which is great it's almost a bit like almost like a kind of relative coming to a party slightly late on a lot of the genres. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's kind of, that's quite sort of endearing as well, I think. But uh, it's, yeah, it's less endearing when it's, uh, you buy a dance compilation, it's got Eurythmics on it. But I, I, quite, I quite like that about it. And in, again, in the way that, you know, the, the BBC would do things slightly too late and get it slightly wrong. It's, um, yeah. I find it quite endearing. Um, well, yeah, the the 80s musically for me, I think, were you know, the, it's kind of like a, a valley where you know it starts amazingly, and in '89 is another peak, and in the middle you just have this trough. Um, and the, the Now albums kind of mirror that, I suppose. They certainly picked up. Uh, and then, yeah, I remember getting a Now Dance in '89. They keep on moving by Soul to Soul. I can't think which one that would be, yeah. but I bought I bought that um, on vinyl. Possibly the first Now compilation I ever bought, actually. <laughs> You talk about those kind of nineties albums. Then, what 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 was the appeal for those compilations at that point? Then, well, for a start, uh, certainly in the mid nineties, a lot a lot of things I would have bought on seven inch single weren't coming out on seven inch single anymore. They were starting to. I still could, you know, I still bought things like uh, I don't know, Baby Baby by Corona, yeah, <laughs> Wakefield's first four singles. I'm, I think I've got them on seven inch, uh, but that was starting to become harder. They certainly weren't available in everywhere you went anymore. Um, and so, yeah, now now CDs were a good way of getting like you know current chart yeah. dance pop hits, uh, and I was a big fan of kind of Euro stuff as well. So uh, yeah, that's uh, I would have started buying them regularly around ninety three ish. Yeah, maybe. you almost forget how expensive and how worthless CD singles were. 
that's a great example Corona Baby Baby fantastic bit of Europop I didn't need six other mixes of that for four ninety nine. no 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 I never I never liked CD singles or whatever I never really understood why um, they didn't persevere with the three inch CD single so you yeah. have like a sort of five inch CD album, three inch single. Like that. Do you remember the adapters that went with the three inch CD singles though? To make it uh, used to get a what, went around the edge of them. No, I remember the tray, the tray, the CD player tray yeah. having like in the middle for a three um, inch. But uh, I have, I have a vague memory of a kind of plastic outer ring that you could then fit your three D uh, your three inch single into the middle of. And, right. Wow. And if you were really lucky, it fell out and got got lodged in your CD player. I think I came back to now in the mid-90s for that same reason. And I think as well by that point, now we're better, I think, at sequencing the tracks. Yeah, definitely. I don't know when Ashley Abrams started doing them. Was he, was he there from the beginning? Or? I think, yeah, he, he was there, I think, from the beginning. Okay, yeah, no, they definitely, definitely get better. I mean, it's, they're just better at grouping things together. A lot of now, see, and now compilations, there's like a whole disc I've never bothered listening to. <laughs> for, for the same reason, you know, they put rotten songs on one disc. One of my favourites is now 68, where um, disc one is kind of like, all, you know, there's nothing I'd skip on disc one, and disc two I just never, ever listened to. If you look back to the kind of 20s and 30s, the dance music was always on the second disc, because mm. it was almost seen as a kind of supplementary disc after you'd properly listened to UB40 and Phil Call. I'm having a real go at Phil Collins today. I, I, I really, sorry, Phil, I mean, the first disc would always have what would be seen as those more traditional acts dance on the second and it would continue. I think that flipped, you know, what you're describing, 60s, 70s onwards, it kind of flipped around just because dance culture was so front and centre for everything. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I don't know if it was it always disc two for the kind of uh, I've got now 30 in front of me here so something like now 30 with Scarlet Dilly Nail and Bobby Brown you can play that game you're Eternal and Corona Buckethead Alex Party and the massive number one from the Out Here Brothers 40 top chart hits now 30 that's what I call music yeah, well, still, yes. I mean, yeah. Disc one is just um, quite a, quite an odd mixture, and then disc two starts with um, the Out Here Brothers. Is it out here or out there? I've never. That's a good point. Hang on, I'm gonna. I'm just. I'm just looking back now. To be honest, right? Let's have a look now. Thirty. I just said out here. Yes, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, the Alex Party, Strike, Bucketheads, Nightcrawlers, Tintin Out, Corona, Clock, Entrance, JX, and that's all in a row. And it's like you know, they're all they're all great. You wouldn't skip any of them. No, no. Um, whereas you look back. Disc one, Boyzone, uh, Mike and the Mechanics, Jimmy Nail, Sting and Pato Banton. There's a there's a popmaster question if there was ever one that pops up regularly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yesterday. I think it was actually. Yeah, <laughs> um, that CD two is proper shiny dance pop. Yeah, all, all the way through, with with a couple of exceptions. There are a few. We won't name names, Sean McGuire, but. Um, <laughs> well, actually, Pato Banton makes onto both. I was going to say that Pato Banton twice with Rankin Roger. Okay, yeah. <laughs> no, no struggle with Britpop. Mm. They really, you know, that it was a, it, it was quite a tricky period, and there was quite a lot of that indie landfill they call it. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and I think you know they kind of they kind of struggle, and actually when they dropped that and just went back to pop, I think they actually become better time capsules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so much of that stuff was just like. Things I didn't like anyway, but I mean, this, yeah. Now, going back to now, looking at now, thirty. It's got whatever by Oasis as the last track on disc one, and nothing else. Oh, wake up, boo, kind of vaguely rip pop, yeah. I suppose. But that's it, you know. It's got uh, Massive Attack and Portishead immediately before Oasis. Quite a nice little sequence. 
it's interesting because often you think of the now brand as being a very 80s thing, but actually everybody's got their signposts for now. They do still do what they claim to do, which is to pull together the latest songs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, that's why I was so, so disappointed when Now 100 had like was look, look, looking backwards because that's the one thing that Now hadn't done, and it becomes less of it doesn't become a time capsule anymore. It's it's, it's something else. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I, I still I still buy them when they come out now. Um, there was a, there was a point where I was getting really I was always buying them from Sainsbury's in Muswell Hill just because that felt like the the thing to do. That was the thing I always did. But I've been sent a few free recently, so I, because I've done a couple of articles, so uh, I'm sure they'll stop sending them to me soon. I still buy them, uh, you know, as they come out as well, um, leaving them almost to mature and actually putting them away on a shelf and coming back to them a few years later and seeing how well they represent that period of time. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised because of the, um, because they've been putting out the CDs uh, three a year of the, of the early ones that were never on CD in the first mm. place. But now five, I was I was really surprised at how well that hung together. Um, yeah, because it's you know definitely not not my favourite period of music, but um, something something like you know Round and Round by Jackie Graham just sounded much better than I remembered it. Disc one's got in, in, in too deep, but Dead or Alive, which is great. Icing on the cake by Stephen Tintin Duffy. Don't you forget about me, which is you know just like air, isn't it? You see it everywhere, but it's like you know it's. Slave to Love, Brian Ferry. Uh, and One More Night is the Phil Collins song, which is like, you know, one of the less objectionable Phil Collins songs. So <laughs> apart from the 19 Not Out, um, it's pretty Yeah, and we spoke about that on um, one of the other podcasts um, with Simon Galloway. Quick shout out to Simon from Giddy Carousel of Pop. And we talk about that rather strange Rory Bremner track on there, which basically says, we can't license Paul Hardcastle, so we'll give you Rory Bremner. <laughs> And yeah, I've thought of that. That's definitely what it is, isn't it? Well, you listen back to it now, and it's 1985 contextualized gags about cricket commentators. <laughs> it's it's amazing we don't hear it more on the radio, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> These reissues that have come back out in CDs are, you know, I mean, they are interesting. And you know, your example of Jackie Graham that that is such a lovely sunshine pop track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time, I think it just completely washed over me, and I. It's just got a very nice kind of um, sort of melancholic feel on the chorus as well. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's it's a lovely record. But I was, I was I put it on and was not expecting to particularly enjoy it. And uh, I bet you know, obviously things like the Word Girl first simply red hit. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it certainly certainly works as a time capsule. That is what 1985 sounded like to me. It is interesting though that you mentioned the the time capsule element of the nose. I suppose any compilation album, but it's it's a moment in time. But it's more fun often going back and finding those one hit wonders, or those subgenres that have slipped off the radar, and actually picking up on those tracks. They're often more interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um... I mean, yes, I was thinking of uh, Stranger Things that are on KTL albums. And there's um, You've Got to Be a Hustler If You Want to Get On by Sue Wilkinson, which I think is, actually opens one of the sides of a KTL album. What a strange record that was. I've no idea what it was meant to be or uh, a lady with a sort of slightly posh voice um, talking about how to get on by sleeping around. <laughs> Uh, and she did an album apparently which is i've never seen a copy of so uh yeah that was that was a uh, definitely an obscure and sort of micro genre so a bit like lindsay de paul i suppose and i think the success of the top of the pop three runs on bbc4 been able to see something like for example susan fassbender i knew you were oh, going to say that did you <laughs> yeah yeah i knew you were going to say susan fassbender then yeah absolutely i live in bradford now and she was from bradford so it's like yeah. uh, because proud that she's like a sort of like a local pop star 
And I think at the moment, you know, we've kind of reached 1990 and actually seeing those mishits or, you know, the, you know, the kind of tracks that you've just forgotten about um, are much, much more fun. I, t- I do tend to sit with fast forward through them when I'm watching them. Watching Beats International four weeks in a row is fab, but, you know, I would, I would much rather see uh, the wonderful Billy Ray Martin doing Electric 101, which, you know, you just don't see and, and you know, it's um, or JT and the Big Family or something like that, you know, yeah. trying to make some sense of a tallow house. <laughs> so, to, so, you know, these are, these are great moments. Yeah, they absolutely are. It's, um, yeah, the, the Electro 101 performance, I don't remember, and that's like, you know, an extraordinary performance. And the, the first thing I did was to look up what she's doing now and what she's done in between. It's like not very much, really. I think she's, yeah. I don't know, I've, I've, I've never seen an interview with her. I don't know very much about her. I and mean, considering she made sort of three or four really classic records, um, it's quite odd that people don't talk about her. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's an ama- that was an amazing performance. And JT and a big family... Sort of similarly amazing, but for different reasons. It was what what I'm really enjoying just now is watching um, these session singers miming along to Aretha Franklin or, <laughs> or, or samples of old soul records. And uh, there's a wonderful innocence to that 1990 period because, and again, the BBC not really getting it, and even just seeing Bruno Brooks on a week to week basis looking like an estate agent. It's, it's, it's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think you're right. 1990 is definitely has a, a real innocence to it. I think um, there was that kind of yeah, that sort of Balearic anything goes thing does yeah really seeps into the mainstream very quickly. And that's yeah, so I suppose that's what the Beast International record is is like that. It's like let's think of three samples, stick them together, and find someone to sing "Just Be Good to Me" over the top. It's kind of what what we did with "Ain't Love Can Break Your Heart." It was just a there was a lot of that about. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a real real positivity and. Um, yeah, the kind of the kind of post soul to soul stuff in particular, I, I really really love from 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 1990. There was so much of it around, flotation by the grid or whatever. So yeah, then the top of the pop, top of the pops does kind of reflect that in 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 the best possible way. It's presented by an estate agent. <laughs> uh, that's kind of what you want. You, know, you want it to be slightly wrong. Um, if it, it's yeah, you know, when Radio One reinvented itself, was kind of where it became too self aware. It's like that's you know, I, I tend to lose interest. I think. <laughs> We talk a bit about your experience of creating compilations um, as well, and you've um, done those for your own record label for Croydon Municipal, uh, Sainsbury's as well, and uh, recently with Ace Records. Um, how did this come about? Uh, well, same as pretty much anyone else. I think I just used to make tapes uh, and then give them to people a bit later on CDRs. So I've just done that for Donkey's Years, I've got this kind of system which which works for me, but looks incredibly ancient now. Which I put everything on. I put. I'll make a compilation on a mini disc, and then make CDRs from the mini disc. <laughs> so I'm very much stuck in the mid nineties. Um, but you know they're very easy to. You can move the tracks around so easily and and edit them if you want. It's very easy to do. And I'm not not great with computers. So yeah, it's just basically something I've, I've done for for years for fun. And um, I think when we, uh, me and Pete Weeks had a label called Emmy Disc in the mid '90s, and we asked if we could use get any catalogue stuff. Uh, and they said, well, you know, come up with some ideas and we'll see what we can do. And I, we did a Glen Campbell one. I think that's the first compilation um, I ever put together when me and Pete put together, which is one disc of '60s, one disc of '70s, uh, and cutting out the sort of cornier stuff that always turned up on greatest hits albums. So it's something I've always, I've always wanted to do, and and the 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 kind of the run I'm doing with Ace at the moment, which I kind of like wait to to stop at any moment because it just feels too good to be true. 
a lot of them are like compilations I've kind of had in in my mind or I've made rough versions of over the years. Uh, three day week one, um, uh, Daisy Age, but they're, yeah, they're 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 good fun and they they seem to be selling okay. So fingers crossed, it'll keep going for a while. I was going to ask about that, um, where the inspiration comes from, because if you look across the Ace compilations. It's quite a broad range, you know, you've kind of said they've gone from that kind of Daisy Age hip-hop sound. I'm just looking here, 1976 and the summer of 76 soundtrack, early 80s electro. Uh, just just from my, my record collection and my personal taste, it's, um, if I can think of something that hasn't been done, the Daisy Age just felt like a absolute open goal because... It's you know it's a fairly finite um, certainly finite time period and there weren't a huge amount of records in that vein. You wish there were more. So it, it yeah that just kind of put itself together and it's like who who doesn't like that stuff? I thought you know that's that's going to sell. I mean Ace obviously isn't really known. It's mostly known for like sixties soul, fifties rock and roll and R and B. And so it's you know they, they I think they just like trusted <laughs> trusted me to that that was going to work because like then you know they haven't even got into the eighties let alone the nineties generally. And the, the Tears of Technology, which is like the early 80s one, was um, something me and Pete had um, been talking about for years and like made sort of rough tapes of like 30 years ago, really. Uh, we had a friend who worked for a, a company called Tear Tech. And uh, so we, we made jokes about being short for the Tears of Technology. That's where the title came from. Uh, so that, that joke's 30 years old. And yeah, we, we just, we, you know, we, we grew up with a kind of, you know, loving, kind of more melancholy side of synth stuff. And so the, the the bigger names on that, like Sea Land by OMD, and used by Soft Cell, were just obvious ones. And it was um, a lot a lot of the other a lot of the singles on that I I I didn't know before. I did did a bit of research, mm. the more obscure ones. That's just an idea that's been floating around for, for donkey's years. It's not like I just sort of sit down and come up with these nice ideas fresh. They're, they're, they're mostly things that've been in my head a long time. You compare it to that creating a mixtape for someone. The best ones are usually the ones that come from left field. Yeah, I mean, it's um, even if it's like a you know sort of synth pop or some some relatively obvious genre, you can certainly think of like left field entries. Uh, I thought you know start, starting with a China Crisis instrumental made sense to me, but I, it wouldn't have been like that if uh, EMI put it out. In fact, Ace had like a rule of not starting compilations with instrumentals, which. I've completely ignored because I really like starting compilations with instrumentals. There's a wonderful air of curation about those albums. The one that, that really stood out for me was the Richard Kirby one. The flow of that album, you know, it's you can hear that it's that it's been thought out, and um, that is obviously you know the key of a good compilation that it tells a story. Yeah, thanks. Um, he's 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 someone where. I heard the Nick Drake albums, I think, in the mid-80s, 84. I think when I was working in Our Price, because they were all still in print, I think it was like, um, I think his estate had uh, asked Ireland to keep his records in print forever. As like, and, and somehow, that one, for one reason or other, they did. So um, there's like, yeah, a kind of folky guy who worked in Our Price in Epsom, and he said, you've got to hear Nick Drake, I think you'd love him. And the, the, the thing that's always stood out for me on his records is the arrangements, you know, more than his voice or the songs even. Um, so Robert Kirby was a name I just definitely looked out for on other records after that. Things like the Keith Christmas album I bought uh, just because it had a Robert Kirby arrangement on and, and when I took it home, it was an absolutely astounding record as well. So, yeah, he's he's someone that I've, I've always thought was very underrated and doesn't get his due when people talk about Nick Drake. And they, they were friends from Cambridge. It's like the, the, the kind of songs and the arrangements really went hand in hand. So he, he was a very important 
part of those records um, and has a very specific, very English sounding orchestral sounds, kind of Vaughan Williams ish, I suppose, if you're going to think of someone. So, yeah, that was that was something I'd always wanted to do. There's probably room for a volume two there because he, he had his sort of late period renaissance work with Paul Weller and Magic Numbers and uh, not us, sadly, because he he died uh, quite quite young. So we went went for a drink with him to talk about doing stuff, and he was uh, he was a lovely bloke, um, but he was quite ill and uh, died not long after that. But um, I'm glad I got to meet him because he was he was he was, a, he was a really lovely, really funny bloke. Have you got a favourite of those compilation albums? I think I was really I was really happy with State of the Union, which is the like America in 1968 compilation, where which is basically sort of pre pre Beatles acts reacting to Vietnam and what was going on in America at the time. Um, so it's got like Dean Martin, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra. It's not, uh, uh, I was pleased it's sold because like, you know, looking at the track listing, it's, it might have, people might just thought, what on earth is this? Um, so I think the artwork is a, is a really important part of these compilations as well, because you have to explain the story with the, with the, with the imagery. Um, and that was, uh, I think people, people did understand that one straight away, which I was really pleased about. Because it was, it was, you know, it's, it's a fascinating period. And it's fascinating that America really was really looking at itself in the way it kind of is now. But, it, you know, that came out in pop records. It's, it's amazing. There's kind of like a social history element to some of these as well, and def- certainly on that one. So it's, it's, it's fun to write the sleeve notes too. There was tracks on that that I had just never heard. Lots of, lots of very big names tracks like the Paul Anka track, for example, and, you know, that, 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 that really just, you know, astonishing point in America's history that these recognised artists were, you know, kind of making these social commentaries and in most cases were completely bombing. But it's, yeah. you know, it's a really kind of interesting period. Is there, is there anything that you're still aiming to capture in compilations? Have you got anything on the horizon? Um, I definitely want to do more 90s stuff because it feels like there's a lot, a lot of sort of um, areas of early 90s music in particular, which are, yeah, there, there, there can be compilations out there, but there's nothing. I think the packaging and the telling of the story is so important. Um, and the early '90s, certainly in, in British music, is just such a you know incredible, such an incredible explosion of different types of uh, dance music. And um, yeah, those stories haven't really been told properly. And Britpop kind of like takes over so much and and now you know the bbc is basically run by um, menswear it's kind of uh, <laughs> not going to be any easier to talk about baby d on radio 1990 to 94 is just such an interesting period it, it, it was it was a very influential period for my own record buying yeah if we can if we can drag world of twist back into public consciousness please i'd be more than happy um, oh yeah yeah i think uh, it, it, it feels like that's Probably going to happen at some point. I think it's like there's there's there's, there's enough people who are sort of um, journalists or people in positions of relative power <laughs> who I think are either World of Twist or Earl Brutus fans. There should be something uh, something important should happen at some point. A documentary or a book or something. I'm sure. Yeah, Paris Angels back into back into the into the into the realm of things. The amount of mileage I got out of that track, Perfume, on the dance floor as a DJ, my goodness. Uh, that, was, that was a great single. That was a really good single. I think when we, when one of the Sainsbury's compilations with Pete Selby, we were talking about a Manchester one before the plug got pulled on that. 
uh, there would have been a Manchester one and we'd, we'd certainly put perfume on, on that. The compilation market can be saturated with the kind of box set element. The Now albums particularly have now got to this 100 range, the Now 100 packs. And, you know, 100 songs of the 70s, you can get a bit lost. There's almost a challenge in keeping a compilation to one CD because it keeps a kind of quality control element in there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, I, I quite often look at, I mean, there's this Elton John box set just come out yeah. and uh, it's reading a review. I haven't got a copy, but it's uh, reading a review. There's like a, a sort of lost psychedelic concept album in there, like the whole thing. It's like, well, I would definitely buy that if it was a standalone album. Yeah. Um, not sure if I'm going to buy, I'd like a copy. I'm not sure if I'm going to spend 70 or 80 quid on a five CT yeah. <laughs> compilation of uh, obscure Elton John songs. But um, yeah, and no, it just feels like, well, surely somebody could have thought I'll do that as a standalone vinyl album, press 500 copies or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, there's that, 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 yeah, I'm definitely more drawn to that than the uh, huge overarching 510 CD story. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing. It's um, it's, and I think the, you know the best compilations are those ones that are thought through. They you know they've got a narrative and they kind of flow through. One of the things that I like doing with these podcasts is kind of going beyond the now and exploring the whole compilation market because I think in this country we've we've got quite an interesting love affair with compilations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it feels like you know you, obviously there, there are compilations in America and Europe, but it never feels like anybody's. Um, got the same obsession with them. It's uh, it's, it's odd, isn't it? Like, yeah. like the charts, I suppose. Really, same similar kind of thing. I, I think, think so. especially when things are like in sort of are numbered and in runs, and you want to collect them, and they kind of like put things together. It's something in the British mentality, maybe that makes us yeah. like them more than other countries. Just before we wound up our conversation, I asked Bob about his latest compilation for Ace Records, Café Exel, New Adventures in European Music, 1972 to 1980. Yeah, that's um, I've done that with um, Jason Wood, who uh, he basically runs home in Manchester. He does the cinemas there. Yeah. Um, he's really very high up at Curzon before that, which is how I met him. I, I can't remember. We were talking about doing a John Barry film season. It never happened, but... Um, I think he must have put on one of the St. Etienne films or one of the Paul Kelly films. Um, so that's how I met him. But he's 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 a great bloke. He's um, he's really into jazz, but in like, in a kind of like a way that I can understand it. And he's, he never talks down to me about jazz like um, some people do. Um, so so he's introduced me to a lot of interesting stuff that I never thought I'd have listened to. And and Cafe XL basically just came came together. We just like uh, it was a Sunday. We were just like around his house, just and he's just putting these records out, and I was like. All these things really do fit together. It's just a question of how you, how you do it. And it's like, well, it's all like mid-70s, mostly European stuff. So it straight away made me think of Bowie. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking he, these are the kind of records he'd probably have been listening to or he certainly have come across. The theme came after like we actually played them all, but uh, it, it, I think it definitely definitely works. And from that, from that start point, we obviously plugged gaps with um, yeah. things he definitely would have listened to um, that he, was, he, he said he was inspired by and... Uh, so that's how that compilation's come out. So yeah, basically the the, the Cafe Excel is um, sort of roundabout way of saying it's uh, it's kind of a soundtrack to uh, Bowie and Iggy's time in Berlin and what they might have heard in yeah. uh, bars. Cafe Excel being one of the bars they used to hang out in. Bob, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and exploring compilations and your own memories. No, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. One, to have someone who's still compiling and making fabulous curated albums, but also someone who's actually appeared on a new album as well. <laughs> yeah, just the one. That was, that was a thrill. Thank you so much uh, for yes. joining me. Thanks very much. 